0: What's the biggest challenge facing human civilization right now? Fake news, poverty, hunger, oppression. Yes, all of these are huge problems right now. But if climate change kicks in, you can bet that it'll amplify these problems and many more. That's why it's critical that we get answers and fundamental models to help understand where we are, where we're going, and how we can improve things. On this episode, you'll meet Dr. Damien Irving. He's a climate science researcher using Python to understand what the climate models are telling us. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 134, recorded October 16th, 2017. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter, where I'm at mkennedy. Keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at TalkPython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at TalkPython. Hey, everyone. I'm super excited to bring you this Climate Science, Climate Change episode. But before we do, I want to just catch you up really quick on my free MongoDB course that I talked about last week. If you're looking to learn MongoDB, especially with Python, check out freemongodbcourse.com. Just last week, over 5,000 people signed up and really enjoyed it. So drop by the website, sign up, and check it out. Now, let's talk with Damien about climate research and Python. Damien, welcome to Talk Python. Thanks
1: for having me. Very happy to be on.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited about our topic that we've got lined up today, Python and climate science. And I think there's just so many aspects to talk about that Well, we're going to cover on a bunch of them, right? We'll cover a bunch of different things, the programming, the problems you're trying to solve the education problems in terms of educating data scientists, and, and much more than that, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully, uh, we can have a wide-ranging chat.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that's the way we should definitely do this. But before we get to that, let's start with your story. How did you get into programming in Python?
1: Well, I mean, I, I did my undergraduate degree in science, uh, majoring in meteorology, uh, way back in 2008 now. and But that actually kind of involved very little programming, which sounds shocking, but is actually pretty common for people who study science. So I think the only programming course I did was a a short summer intensive learning FORTRAN in the engineering department, and that actually put me ahead of the curve and ahead of most undergraduate scientists, and so I picked up a summer job. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it's scary to think back. (laughs) Yeah, and then so I was able to pick up a job off the back of that, basically doing some work for an assistant professor in the meteorology department after I finished my undergraduate degree, and he kind of sat me down in front of a... Command prompt pointed me towards (laughs) Ferris, which is a a scripting language used a bit in oceanography and kind of left me to it. (laughs) And I I bumbled my way through that.
0: Nice. Was that actually in Fortran or what what language was that in?
1: No. So Ferris is kind of a a standalone language, I guess, just for doing basic data analysis in oceanography. So it's a fairly limited language, but it's good if you're dealing with oceanographic data. But yeah, I kind of bumbled my way through that and then bumbled my way through using Fortran and things like that in in, uh, an honors degree, which is kind of a a year-long research project you do after your undergraduate in Australia. Yeah, and that was my kind of introduction to programming. And it's kind of a pretty typical scientist experience, kind of self-taught, no formal training or education in programming.
0: Right, here's a problem to solve. Uh, We think programming can help. Here's some tools. Yeah, at it, right? Go.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but then actually, after my honors year, I was lucky enough to get a job at CSIRO, which is a, a national science organisation in Australia, and it was a it was kind of a half research, half support scientist role. And in my support science role, I got to spend a lot of time with. IT people who basically introduced me to Python, and that's kind of where my my path kind of diverged from typical. I got to spend a lot more time with IT nerds than your typical scientists would, so I was kind of really lucky in that <laughs> right. respect. And they pushed me onto Python. Thank goodness. <laughs>
0: yeah, they're like, "What is this language? Nobody knows what you're doing. Go learn Python." Yeah, nice. And so nowadays, what do you do?
1: Yeah, so today uh, nowadays I'm a. Uh, postdoctoral research fellow at CSIRO. So I'm back there after my PhD, which is nice. That's
0: cool. What was your PhD in?
1: Uh, My PhD was in waves in the upper atmosphere and how they affect the weather down at the surface. So
0: Okay. Yeah. I didn't even know there were waves in the upper atmosphere. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, it's kind of... I mean, the atmosphere is kind of a, a fluid... You kind of, I guess you don't think of it like a fluid like you would an ocean, but it flows the same way as as a fluid and stuff. So there are waves just like if you drop a stone into a pond and they, they ripple and things like that. So looking at those waves in the atmosphere.
0: Okay, very cool.
1: Yeah. But yeah, so the work involves, my work right now involves looking at climate model data. There's probably about 40 or so modeling groups around the world that have computer climate models and periodically every five or 10 years or so they all perform sets of common experiments. So they'll have worlds with humans in them and worlds without humans in them and worlds with different levels of greenhouse gases and all those things. And they'll they'll make all that data available. And the entire data set is, you know, multiple petabytes in size, but individual researchers like me typically only require, you know, a subset of, of that data set. And so all that data in Australia, is it a, is it a national computing facility? And, and rather than have people download all that data to their own institution, which would obviously be impractical, they build a lot of, I guess, analysis infrastructure on top of the data. So you log in remotely.
0: I see. That's cool. So there's so much data that it's in one place and you send the code and analysis to the data rather than the other way, huh?
1: Yeah. So they, they have all the analysis infrastructure on top of the data, so you don't have to move it anywhere. So i I live in Hobart in Australia, but I spend my days on a computer that sits on top of all the data in in Canberra. Yeah, so that's kind of what I spend my days doing.
0: That's awesome. That sounds really fun. That's that's an incredible amount of data. How much of uh, what you work with, is it simulation and how much is it analyzing observational type data?
1: Yeah, for me, it's it's pretty much all simulation. So it's all scenarios of the future world to look at climate change or it's kind of reruns of the past 150 years with various elements taken out. So humans might be removed or different aspects to kind of figure out what's caused what, if you like, in the observed climate.
0: I see. What if we never ate beef or something like this, right? Never raised cattle?
1: Yeah, you can have models that have different kind of treatments of what's happening at the surface in terms of vegetation and, you know, yeah, livestock and stuff like that. Yeah, farming practices. Yeah, Yeah, so um, (laughs) I deal almost exclusively in fictitious worlds, but there are plenty of people who who deal with actual observations.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I'm sure that there's a really important place for both. So maybe that's a good place to start. Let's talk about the types of problems that you guys are trying to solve with Python, maybe some of the modeling and how that goes, things like this.
1: I guess most problems that climate scientists are trying to solve when they're using Python is that someone's run one of these models, either a fictitious kind of world like I'm looking at, or ones where um, a whole bunch of observations have been thrown in and, and the model is used to fill the gaps, basically. So Obviously, we, we don't observe temperature and rainfall and all those things everywhere. So models can be used to kind of fill in the gaps between the observations, using the observations as kind of a, a ground truth. And so, either way, whichever type of model you're using, it'll output large, multi-dimensional arrays of data. So they'll have a time axis, a latitude axis, a longitude axis, and you know a depth or a height, altitude axis. So large, multi-dimensional arrays, and then it's it's basically trying to Draw insights from that data about how the climate system works, really. So, a lot of kind of time series analysis on those large arrays, uh, other statistical analysis, and just a lot of the time it's just the fundamental task of actually visualizing what the model is simulating. So, actually visualizing the temperature data or the humidity data or the whatever output it is, just what is this model doing? And a lot of the challenge is just seeing it. <laughs> yeah.
0: Right. I can imagine, right? Like, once you got so much data. Just just great ways to visualize it so you actually understand because that's a lot of axes.
1: Yeah, it seems like a simple thing, but yeah, actually just seeing what a model is simulating is quite a challenge at times.
0: <laughs> yeah, so do you feel like there's a lot of uh, Pandas, NumPy, Matplotlib, Jupyter Notebooks, those types of things?
1: Yeah, definitely um, NumPy or, or libraries built on top of that for multi-dimensional arrays. Uh, Pandas and stuff would be probably more common among, I guess... A lot of scientists are like me and have model data that comes out on these nice grids. And, and then you have, I guess, the other scientists who, it's kind of, they're more GIS problems. They've been out on a research vessel and they've dropped a temperature probe down at one point and then... 100 nautical miles later they drop another one and then another one so then they have this kind of unstructured spatial data i mean it becomes much more of a gis pandas kind of problem
0: right because when you simulate the data you don't have to clean it up as much
1: no it (laughs) becomes fairly nice and it's the grid is you know all the latitudes and longitudes are perfectly spaced and like it's this very nice regular grid. Whereas if you're a, more of an observational scientist and, and you're just taking observations wherever you can, you have to clean it, you have to get it on a grid that's a bit nicer, and so yeah, I, I kind of I thank my lucky stars some days that I'm not in that space, but <laughs> they don't have the ridiculous amount of data that I've got to deal with, so maybe maybe there's some nice aspects to it too. So.
0: Yeah, of course. Of course. Uh, that's, that's pretty interesting. And so for the simulations, I suspect that you have Python in action there, but it's not, is it all in Python or is it C++ or what's, what's the mix there?
1: Most climate models themselves are written in Fortran. So mostly you're using Python for the post-processing. So analyzing the data once it's come out of the model. And this, I guess one reason most of them are in Fortran is kind of legacy issues that most climate models out there have been developed for decades. So when they started Fortran was the only thing available and and the other one I guess is well I guess from a speed point of view you know with Scython and things like that these days you probably could do Python uh, write a climate model in Python and I think Some very simple models written in Python do exist, but in general, yeah, the models are written in Fortran, and the the post processing data analysis is done with Python.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. It scares me a little to think of that much Fortran. Oh yeah. (laughs) But that's okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. When I uh, started in, I studied engineering for a while, and they said the most important language you're going to learn is Fortran. And I said, please let me take C plus plus. They said, nope, you have to learn Fortran. Then you go do these elective courses if you want. I'm like, oh, okay, I see yeah, how that's gonna be. <laughs> but yeah, it sounds like it really might be the case uh, in climate science. That's cool. So you talked about like tremendous amounts of data. Probably parallelism is like an important thing now, right?
1: A lot of the problems are embarrassingly parallel in that you want to just do the same process on every single latitude point or something like that. So there's no kind of talking between analysis points or you want to do the same process across lots of different climate models. So yeah, so some people will write, I guess, parallel code explicitly, if you like, using the multiprocessing Python library or something like that. Or increasingly, I guess it's it's kind of built into the package they're using. So Dask is, I'm sure, one that's been talked about on previous episodes of your podcast but that's kind of built into x-array which is kind of a, a build-on of, of pandas for multi-dimensional arrays and so it kind of chunks your problem and does all this parallel scheduling and stuff for you so some people are doing that but sometimes I feel like it's a little bit like everyone talks about big data but most people aren't actually in that space with the analysis they do and it's it's a little bit the same. I think most people are kind of still in the the medium data space where even if they're dealing with a big data set, they're only interested in a, a smaller subset and you can kind of get around the need for writing parallel code by just using the numpy functions that allow you to vectorize your problem rather than looping and a lot of the packages in climate science kind of do lazy loading where you can kind of load all the metadata about the data first and have a look at what's in there before you actually and then you can just actually load the data that you want instead of the whole thing at once
0: (laughs) okay yeah that sounds that sounds pretty interesting do you leverage like gp gpus you know the running on gpus for computational stuff any or is it mostly just straight cpu
1: i think i've i mean i've spoken to people who are using gpus as well as CPU, so I know it can be done. I I haven't personally, <laughs> but yeah, some people some people do. Yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, that's cool. Yeah, there's probably even some uh, computational bits you can plug in that like blue what you're actually doing could harness the power of GPUs maybe. So all this data is this like in a giant database? Is it in a bunch of CSVs? <laughs> Where do you get your data from?
1: Most of the output from client models these days goes into a, a file format called uh, NetCDF. I think Network Common Data Form must be the what it stands for. So it's it's a subset of uh, HDF5, and so it's a self-describing format. So it it carries all its kind of metadata with it, um, which is really cool. Right. And then in kind of weather, climate, ocean science, there's a there's a whole set of CF conventions. They're called so climate and forecast conventions around what metadata you use in the file. So how exactly do you describe the time axis? Do you say days since yyy slash mm slash dd so all these things so that then when people build you know libraries in weather and climate science they can assume this basic level of metadata compliance in the files which means that they can write functions that really speed up your analysis because um, they yeah they can assume certain things about the data so yeah net cdf in this kind of cf compliance format metadata format is kind of ubiquitous through weather, ocean, climate science now. All right,
0: yeah, that's that's interesting. So it sounds like maybe if you've got this common format, like a bunch of different libraries and packages can read and understand it. So what are the major packages that you might use in Python to work with climate science?
1: Probably these days, I mean, first off, you would be installing your environment using Conda for sure. So a big headache used to be just getting all the, the non-Python dependencies installed. So obviously... There's a lot of our libraries that are sitting underneath or there's net CDF libraries that have to be installed and things like that. And they used to be a complete nightmare. And so Conda has absolutely been a game changer. So yeah, people are installing their stuff with Conda.
0: Yeah, and Conda gives you uh, basically a virtual environment, but it delivers the packages pre-compiled in a binary form for your OS rather than via source, like PIP or something like that, right?
1: But It used to be that if you wanted to use a particular library that had C dependencies or something, you had to figure out how to install those C dependencies yourself, <laughs> as well as right. PIP installing it. But now it's just, yeah, you go, Conda install, one line, it's all done. It's uh, It's amazing. But yeah, so, but basically in terms of the the main libraries that get used, so I mentioned XArray before, so basically that library takes Pandas, which is obviously that, that labelled array concept for two-dimensional arrays, and then ex- expands it for multi-dimensional arrays, so, and it was actually a climate scientist, Stephen Hoyer, who initially wrote it, um, and now it's kind of been taken up by the, the broader PyData community, but um, yeah, so that, that one is very popular, and then the other one is the Met Office in the UK have written one called Iris, which is similar to x ray except that x ray will let your files not be so kind of CF, NetCDF metadata compliant. So if you have files from a project that isn't very strict on their metadata in their NetCDF files, it'll work just fine, whereas Iris really demands those things of you. And so for me, I'm using data from projects that are very good about the metadata and stuff. And so I use Iris because because it is so strict about the metadata in the input files. It can, you can do tasks slightly faster, if you like, with less commands because it, it can make more assumptions of the input data. Yeah, so I, I use Iris.
0: But If you're going to draw results, you probably want to have some strictness on the data you're basing those results on, right?
1: Some people find it overly restrictive in that they want some files that don't have, you know, standard metadata type thing so, so they'll go the x-array route but basically if you're a climate scientist you're kind of choosing between iris or x-array for your, the bulk of your work so for input output to netcdf files for calculating basic statistical quantities and basic visualizations stuff like that's all kind of they're the, the core libraries you'll, you'll kind of um, leverage off
0: This portion of TalkPython to me is brought to you by Park My Cloud. Every second your cloud servers are running is costing you money Cut your monthly cloud spend and stop paying for idle instances and VMs with ParkMyCloud, a cloud cost management tool that turns off resources when you don't need them. From their dashboard, automatically schedule your instances to be turned on or off, saving you as much as 65% or more on your cloud spend. Manage databases, auto-scaling groups, set up logical groups of servers to turn off during nights and weekends when they're not in use. Whether you're using AWS, Azure, or Google Cloud, it's easy to save money with ParkMyCloud. Try park My Cloud and see why it's chosen by McDonald's, Capital One, Unilever, Fox, and more, saving customers tens of thousands of dollars every month. Visit talkpython.fm slash park and cut the cost of your cloud today. That's talkpython.fm slash park. It seems to me like the whole Python data science space in the last five years. 10, definitely five years, has gotten really polished and really blown up. Uh, probably it was a little harder to work with Python and stuff in the beginning, right?
1: When I started, yeah, obviously Conda didn't exist. Iris and x-ray weren't there. There was a, something a little bit like those um, that existed. Even these days, they're taking it a step forward. And I'm not sure if um, you've heard of the GeoViews or HoloViews library for visualization in, in Python.
0: Yeah, I don't think I've heard of that one. Tell us about it.
1: So basically, I guess it's, it's getting into that kind of declarative visualization space, the idea being that for data exploration, you don't want to spend all your time kind of tweaking the axes of a plot and deciding on exactly which type of plot you want to create to look at this particular data. You basically just want to tell the library the characteristics of your data and have it decide what the best axes would be, what the best map projection would be, and all those things. So... There's kind of two major libraries getting into that space. One's called Holoviews and the other one's called Altair. So Holoviews is much more established, I guess. And it can kind of use Matplotlib or Bokeh under the hood, depending on whether you want like a static image or an interactive image.
0: Right. That sounds great. And you can maybe almost publish it to the web. Really easy with Poker, yeah?
1: Yeah, so with HoloViews you can definitely do that, but anyway, so HoloViews doesn't have support for geographic plots of the type on a world map of whatever kind of map projection you'd like, which is a common thing in climate science, so the Met Office again have developed um, GeoViews on top of HoloViews, and so basically the idea being that you just throw your data at it, you give it a description of the basic characteristics of your data, and it figures out the rest, and you can have a static image, or you can have a an interactive image that you could publish to the web, and it's this, kind of, this is really kind of taking down the barrier to kind of what I was talking about before of just that task of visualizing the data you've got <laughs> quickly and easily. to Right. Yeah. That's
0: awesome. And the more the system can do it automatically, just look at it and go, well, it looks like the axis should be this and it should all do this. And like, that's really great.
1: These type of things are just game changing in terms of the, of the amount of analysis you can get done. You know, you're not spending your days mucking around with axes and map projections. It just happens. And what used to take weeks now takes a couple of hours.
0: Oh, that's awesome. So either now or going in the future, how do you see like machine learning and AI starting to work its way into like analyzing climate data and making predictions and stuff?
1: There is some active stuff happening in that space. I was at a conference last year at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab in San Francisco, and there was a group there looking at applying machine learning to weather and climate type problems so i think it'll definitely happen i think i think at the at the moment they're in that kind of space where they're trying to figure out which problems are kind of amenable to machine learning type solutions (laughs) it's almost like (laughs) it it, it doesn't make sense to apply to everything but there, there will be certain questions within weather and climate science that could be answered much better with by applying that so it seemed like they have, if you like, machine learning as a solution, and now they're trying to find good questions <laughs> um, to answer with it.
0: Yeah, there's a bit of that. Yeah,
1: but that was kind of interesting. It was kind of, um, it was an interesting conference. Oh,
0: I'm sure. I know that machine learning has been taught to do things like look at mammograms and predict breast cancer mm, mm. as good or better than professionals, right? At least under some circumstances. So it feels like, you know, it's it's really good at looking at pictures and and finding subtle, subtle trends that people might miss. And I'm just wondering, Like, it seems like there's probably some good ways to use it to understand things that are subtle but then explode later in, in climate evolution.
1: Or particularly, like you could imagine it, it could look at a weather map and identify the fronts or other weather features and it's just a question of would it do that better than existing ways that we do it where you might look at a temperature field and you can look at the gradient the temperature gradients and and identify it and it's just the question is would it actually do it better than we do it now or yeah so that's kind of the i think the question at the moment is figuring out what it would be most useful for
0: sure i guess one of the real challenges is if you're trying especially for prediction if you're trying to predict the future you know in the long term not not like what's it going to be like tomorrow in this town? But like, what's it going to be like in 20 years? Machine learning is really good when you feed it lots of examples. It was like this. And the outcome was that it was like, this. that, you know, like that, uh, that breast cancer one was given like a hundred thousand mammography scans and the answer. And then I was asking more, right? We only live from the past towards the future once, right? Like we can't, we don't have a bunch of examples to feed it. Right?
1: Yeah. You're right. Which makes it difficult in a climate sense. Cause there's only one realization of our past climate. Whereas, the applications might be more in forecasting and stuff where
0: yep, exactly,
1: a cold front has come across Portland, Oregon, <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of times in the past. Exactly. So, <laughs> yeah, so maybe it's, there's more of a, a weather forecasting application.
0: Right. That's interesting. Not as cool as if we could answer major, major questions with machine learning, but uh, who knows? Maybe someday someone will figure out a way to make it work. But speaking out of figuring out how to make it work, one of the challenges I suspect is all of this programming and these data tools and, and programming tools are great, but you said your experience was you weren't giving tons of programming support as a scientist, and that's probably true for many of them. So what do we need to be doing to help like instill those like, real programming skills? Or-
1: I don't think the, uh, the situation, I mean, I only graduated from my undergraduate degree back in 2008. I don't think the situation has, has changed much since and so I, I think, obviously, Software Carpentry is a big one, a big organization that's kind of helping with this. And I, I think you've had Greg Wilson on a, on a previous episode talking a little bit about Software Carpentry and, and everything they do. Yeah, I actually
0: had Jonah Duckles on the podcast, and that was back on episode 93. And we talked about Software Carpentry, which is a group that basically works with scientists around the world to help them become better programmers and better data scientists. It's really cool. So there's some aspect of that with... Um, with climate science stuff? Is there a particular course for climate scientists, or is it just the general stuff that software carpentry teaches?
1: I'm actually working on some, I guess, climate-specific stuff. Basically, the Australian Meteorological and Oceanographic Society, which is like the professional society in Australia for weather, ocean climate scientists have hosted a a software carpentry workshop alongside their annual conference for the last four years now. And so I'm, I'm basically in the process of writing those material those teaching materials we've been using for that up into a I guess a more climate specific course that'll be hosted with Data Carpentry, which is actually a, a sister sibling organization of software carpentry that that actually has right, right, right. discipline specific materials. Yeah, so if you're if you're lucky enough, to, I guess to be a a young scientist coming through who who has someone at your institution who's really into software carpentry or uh, a professional society like Amos who who offer these types of things, then I guess your situation is is a bit better than than mine was when I came through. But um, there's still yeah a long way to go, and a lot of people who kind of slip through the cracks and just kind of get lumped on a, a research project with really not much assistance at all in terms of learning how to program, which is Which is really sad on a lot of fronts. It's sad personally for them, but also in terms of limiting the progress of their research, it's terrible.
0: Right. I also suspect that there's a a sharing component that's limited as well, right? Like if if you can write – go to MATLAB and write a script that will analyze something and come up with an answer, that's one thing. If you could form it in a way and say in Python, in a way that is reusable and general and tested – then you could put it out on GitHub, and all sorts of people could use it and add to it and I think there's a pure scientific research sort of sharing the knowledge upside there as well
1: when you think about where i guess the the state of climate science is at the moment, and I guess for lack of a better word, the, the computational literacy of the community, you're basically at the point where you're just introducing people to to say GitHub and to having their own personal code under version control and things like that to, to go the next step and have and have them writing code that the wider community can use and it's you know, it's up on GitHub and people are submitting pull requests and, you know, it's tested and there's continuous integration and all those things is just it seems like there are exceptional i guess individuals you like within within the discipline who who do those things but they're very rare and so i think the discipline is another 5 or 10 years off kind of just having the the computational literacy if you like to to do those those things that would that, as you say make make life so much easier for everyone
0: <laughs> yeah it would really be great but that that's definitely uh, those are some advanced ways of working and if especially if if people don't get started early in that, right? They, they don't build up those skills solely over time. You know, they're busy solving real problems with science and computation probably with something like MATLAB or something. Yeah, I can definitely see how that's that's really, really quite challenging. But it's I think it's important for a lot of things. So hopefully the software and data carpentry folks can keep that going. That's great.
1: They're doing great things. They're an amazing organization.
0: What else would you recommend to people out there who are scientists to level up their skills or to keep improving or whatever?
1: Really just encouraging people to to kind of participate in the wider Python community. Go to a PyCon conference or a SciPy conference or something like that, which, which seems obvious to people who are developers in Python and stuff, but academics usually don't really think about, you know, attending conferences outside of their research discipline.
0: Right. They might go to a climate science conference and not PyCon, for example, right?
1: The PyCons that I've been to, there are a lot of kind of support staff there so the support staff at the institution that I work at or at the Bureau of Meteorology or wherever it might be they're all there but the actual scientists who who are doing a lot of data science with Python aren't and it it probably wouldn't occur to them. I must say my my first kind of PyCon really blew my mind in terms of compared to an academic lecture academic conference with like you know the recorded lectures that go up straight away even simple things like you could use your own laptop rather than having to give them a USB and put it into their Microsoft Windows machine, <laughs> and people like yeah. doing things like live, like live coding on the screen and stuff, as opposed to just a static PowerPoint presentation. And it was kind of it was all very mind blowing um, compared to an academic conference. So I think um, yeah, I'd, I'd really encourage people to kind of try and get actively involved in the in the community in some way, and it'll really kind of broaden their horizons and keep their skills improving.
0: Yeah, I would totally second that, and I think. Especially the PyCon conference, conferences, you know, pick your continent maybe. There's a lot of science conversation and data science conversations going on there. Like at PyCon US this year, the keynote speaker was Jake Vanderplas on the first day, who opened it basically surveying all the different ways people use Python, how it's used in astrophysics, how it's used in space telescopes and all sorts of things. And it was very, I think it would, would actually be a really welcoming environment to people who have... Say some programming skill and some programming ambition, but mostly are doing data analysis type stuff. I think it they should definitely check it out. Yeah, for
1: sure. Even like in, in Australia, there isn't quite a critical mass to have a standalone SciPy conference, but at at PyCon Australia, there's always a, a data science track. So you don't have to kind of sit there and you know listen to talks on web development and Django um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and stuff like that. I you don't
0: can... I don't care anymore about what Instagram did with Python. I'm over it. Yeah even if it was cool.
1: No, you can definitely have an almost a pure data science experience when you go to one.
0: Sure. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, for absolutely. The hallway track of those conferences is great as well. You know, just the people you meet doing similar stuff.
1: A lot of the times you don't have much in common with researchers once you get outside of your specific niche, but you often have a lot in common with, in terms of the Python libraries you use and the, the types of basic data analysis you do. So you end up, you find, oh, I have a lot in common with all these people who are from very different fields. And that doesn't usually happen <laughs> if you're just talking about your specific research discipline.
0: Yeah, I was really blown away at how many different people kind of solve similar problems with similar tools, but you know the outcome is really different because of the questions they ask. Mm-hmm. Cool, so I definitely want to yeah encourage people to go to the local Python conferences. They're really good. Some of that software carpentry stuff we talked about sounds like it would be really beneficial to one of the major problems in science is the whole reproducibility thing, right? The better you can get your code on GitHub, maybe create a Docker image that people can download and run exactly like the more that you could share, distribute and sort of save your computation seems really valuable.
1: The reproducibility crisis, I guess, is a big one. And it's So I guess the central tenet is obviously if someone publishes some research, that they describe their methods in such a way that someone else working in that field would be able to reproduce their results if they wanted to. It turns out that most papers published these days aren't reproducible, and it's for a variety of reasons. Um, Some of them are to do with experimental design, the availability of the data sets that were analysed and things like that. But a big one is computational reproducibility in that most papers don't make... The code available that they wrote to do the analysis, or the details of you know the software environment um, that that code was executed in. So yeah, the software carpentry skills and just the basic things about you know using version control and all those types of things are, are huge if we're ever going to actually get past the reproducibility crisis and get to a point where our our research is is truly reproducible.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely think that's something that's important. I mean, the more that our research depends upon code and data, the more important it is that I think that that's accessible. This portion of Talk Python to Me has been brought to you by Rollbar. One of the frustrating things about being a developer is dealing with errors, relying on users to report errors, digging through log files trying to debug issues, or getting millions of alerts just flooding your inbox and ruining your day. With Rollbar's full-stack error monitoring, you get the context, insight, and control you need to find and fix bugs faster. Adding Rollbar to your Python app is as easy as pip install Rollbar. You can start tracking production errors and deployments in eight minutes or less. Are you considering self-hosting tools for security or compliance reasons? Then you should really check out Rollbar's compliant SaaS option. Get advanced security features and meet compliance without the hassle of self-hosting, including HIPAA, ISO 27001, Privacy Shield, and more. They'd love to give you a demo. Give Rollbar a try today. Go to talkpython.fm slash rollbar and check them out. I know the guys at the Large Hadron Collider are doing some really interesting stuff with like taking their code and putting it in like an escrow thing. It's not GitHub, but it's something kind of like GitHub where it's like we promise we won't change or delete this code because it's linked to by this paper things like that. It's been a while. I forgot what the name was. It was like two years ago when we talked about this, but it sounds really uh, important.
1: Some papers that I published recently, I I mean, I I give the link to to GitHub of where the code is if if people want to see, I guess, the latest version, if you like. But then also, I guess, at at the time of publication, you kind of, you take a snapshot, if you like, of your code repository at that point. and, And there's websites, there's one called Figshare and another one called Zenodo, where you can put They kind of call it the long tail of your research so things like code supplementary figures supplementary tables and stuff you put it all out there it gets a a doi a digital object identifier and and those
0: yeah that's that's right and
1: those websites guarantee that they're not going to disappear and it'll be around for you know all eternity for people to be able to get so yeah so in general the best practice these days is definitely give people the link to github so they can see the latest version but also have a version up on persistent storage place like Figshare or Zenodo, so if if you ever change the name of your GitHub repo or something like that, um it doesn't all just
0: disappear. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's great that it is GitHub is there and you do get the latest version, but you could delete that if you just were in a bad mood or, or whatever, right? Or your account gets suspended or hacked or whatever, right? You want to. You definitely want to be careful. So that that sounds really cool, and yeah, that's what the the Large Hadron Collider guys were were talking about as well. The digital object identifiers for the papers. That sounds great. What about like uh, docker containers and these other things where you sort of ship like whole systems do you guys do you see much of that being used?
1: I hear people talking about it as a possible solution. I think because I'm kind of more tuned in than most climate scientists to the kind of reproducibility scene, but I think in, in general. It would probably be asking too much i guess of a, of a regular climate scientist to to be so up on these things to be able to to do the whole docker thing themselves, so I think it, it's a possible solution in future, but it's kind of out of the reach of a regular climate scientist right now if, if you know what
0: I mean yeah, yeah, I definitely know what you mean I think it's out of reach of a lot of developers as well, like not that many people are actually doing you know complicated docker things and in, in, or containers in, in practice, but still it seems like it would be a great solution because you can you capture the whole platform and its dependencies not just the code plus the data
1: i mean i guess a a lighter scale very lighter scale version of that is Conda environments that because you you can post your environment on anaconda.org and then someone can just kind of go conda env and then the url to where you posted it on your profile on anaconda.org and then it'll install your software environment
0: (laughs) oh that is really cool i didn't know that that was a feature they had that's awesome
1: yeah it's it's really cool and they, they actually they go as Step further now. They've got a, I guess, a bit of a beta thing called Conda Capsule or Capsule. I think it's K A P S E L. Yeah, yeah. In that one, instead of posting an environment to anaconda.org that someone can install, you basically write the specifications of of the libraries you use in essentially your README file, and then Conda Capsule just takes your README file and then installs it all. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, that sounds really cool.
1: They're doing all the stuff around Conda is and kind of Conda environments is is really exciting for kind of things that are doable for a regular scientist right now, because it takes one line of code.
0: <laughs> yeah, which is totally possible. It sounds like the conda guys are doing you know tons of good stuff. I know with the anaconda distribution and all that, but it, it sounds like even maybe even more than I realized. That's awesome. We talked a little bit about reproducibility and the various things people should be doing. Like, What are some of the steps that you think are within reach to get people to you know, sort of become better at participating in the wider community, do more stuff on GitHub, more libraries, things like that.
1: One of the major issues I think up until now has been, up until recently has been there isn't really an incentive for people to take the code that they've hacked together for themselves for their, the research problem that they were doing today for this particular paper and put in the time and effort to make it general enough that the wider community could use it and they could pip install it or conda install it and those types of things. There's a few journals out there now. There's the Journal of Open Research Software, which I'm actually an associate editor on, or there's one called the Journal of Open Source Software as well. And basically, the idea is because citations of academic papers is, is currency in academia. That's how you get promoted. That's what your career depends on. That's the kind of incentive. If people can write a paper documenting their this research scientific research software that they've released – And then if people start citing that every time they use it in their papers, then that's the kind of incentive that academics kind of need to go that extra step and actually take their personal code and make it community code. That's starting to happen. And certainly we're getting a lot of submissions at Journal of Open Research Software and stuff. And so now I guess it's it's a matter of it becoming part of the culture for people to actually look for those papers and cite them in the methods section of their papers just to absolutely make sure that the authors of that software are getting the the academic credit they deserve for it.
0: Oh, that's a really good point. You're right that it definitely is the currency of academia. And I guess sort of making that a habit, right, is it's one thing to go to GitHub and grab a package and just go and, like, do some analysis with it. But, you know, how – I guess it almost would be great to have in the package, like, and if you're going to cite this or if you use this in academic paper, please, you know, this goes in the bibliography or whatever, right?
1: Just getting people to start their – the, the methods section of their paper with just one paragraph talking about the software that they used and citing the actual publications that relate to that software, that would make a huge difference. And so it's kind of, it's getting that to okay. be a cultural thing where our method sections always have a bit about the statistical methods that we use. Why don't they have a paragraph on the code that we used and where we got it from.
0: <laughs> is, I think that's a great idea. And it's so, it's so low-hanging fruit, right? It would be really easy to do that.
1: Yeah, so I'd, hopefully it'll, as these journals get bigger and, and people start pushing people to, to cite them, that that'll happen. And you know, in 10 years' time, it'll just be every method section has a paragraph on code.
0: I definitely see that as a, a possible future for us. So speaking of possible futures... Let's have a uh, conversation a little bit about climate change. Uh, you know, you've studied it more than almost... I'm sure you've studied more than anyone else I've spoken to. <laughs> more than most people, let would say. So what do you think? Climate change, is this a, a real thing that people cause it?
1: Absolutely. I guess the, the frustrating thing from a, a climate scientist's point of view is that that question, is, is climate change real and are humans causing it, hasn't been, you know, an active research question for more than 30 years. It's been... <laughs> Accepted in the scientific community for at least that long, and so you know. Well, hold
0: on, hold on. If I turn on the news here in the U.S., there's always some other. There's like half of the person, the people on the TV channel saying, "Oh, I have 400, 4,000 scientists who say this is not real." Like, it's just give us a sense of like why it's so accepted and and whatnot. Uh, you know, maybe put a little pushback on that vision that gets projected by news.
1: Yeah, those ones are very. If, even their statistics, where they go, you know, ninety-seven percent of climate scientists agree it's actually a hundred percent like i i've been going to climate science conferences for a decade now and i've never ever ever sat in a presentation or read a paper that suggests that climate change isn't happening it's a given and it's been a given for a very long time so the disconnect between kind of what's being discussed in the science community and what's being discussed in public is is very frustrating
0: i'm sure it is yeah
1: it's not unique obviously like if i went to a, a health conference um you know the difference between you know public discussions and policy on health would be very different from what experts in health think should be happening and it's not a unique thing if you like but it is particularly frustrating um Mm -hmm. just because it yeah that's a question that we moved on from 30 plus years ago
0: (laughs) yeah i think one of the things that like makes people feel that this is more up for debate than it is is at least in the u.s i haven't I don't know outside the US, but there's this tendency of if you're gonna present something, you're gonna present both sides of it. So if you're gonna talk about climate change, you have somebody for and somebody against. And that makes it feel like it's fifty fifty. And it's not fifty fifty, it's like a thousand to one or something. It doesn't seem like it really needs like this other side to say, well, here's the other side of the argument. This guy, he only works for the you know, this coal company, but he's he's really studied it. It'll be fine. Should listen to him.
1: No, that is. Um, I gets you tearing your hair out when you <laughs> the people that they they put up on television. Yeah, for the against case, like it's like it's in a deb- debate on physical reality. Yeah,
0: right. So I, I'm with you. I, I think this is an important. This might be the fundamental challenge of our generation. Our generations, you know, probably multi generational actually. But you know, what are some of the things you think we can do as just citizens of the world, and what do you think we can do as uh, people with the magical wand of software development where we can actually make things that analyze change and so on.
1: I definitely think getting, I guess, politically active is important. So, you know, writing to Congress people, attending protests, getting involved in, you know, community organizations, whether they're against a, a pipeline that's being built or they're encouraging people to divest their money from fossil fuel companies or whatever it may be. I think it's it's got to just be that groundswell of kind of grassroots activism that, that gets things changed because I mean there are a lot of vested interests in keeping things the way they are I mean the biggest companies in the world are fossil fuel companies like you know Exxon Mobil and, and companies like that so it's a formidable opponent and it really needs a massive grassroots effort and I guess the more I've got to know about the issue the more I've kind of got involved in in those types of things and I, I certainly when I when I first started as a climate scientist I wasn't politically aware or active at all. <laughs> but um, all the, I guess, organizations that I've been involved with as I've become more active, are, you are know, really crying out for help with IT stuff, whether it's their website, whether they, they want to analyze some voting data or whatever the case may be. Like if you rocked up at a, a grassroots organization doing you know climate activism and said hey I've got a bunch of IT skills they'll fall over themselves with um, <laughs> with gratitude and and with things that you can help with and and you'll be you'll be up to your eyeballs in, in way too many things that you've got time to do but yeah no definitely I think developers and people with IT skills have have a particular role to play just because it's they're such important skills and these organizations are just crying out for help with that kind of stuff so yeah if you want to get involved there's absolutely ways to put your skills to good use.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a really good thing to do. Certainly, if, if you gave a couple of hours a week or something to one of these organizations, and they if they really are totally missing the software side of the story, right, they don't have a lot of people to help out there, you could probably make a pretty big difference there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So how much of this do you think is like a political fight versus an economic fight? You know, I mean, like every time you take an action or you buy something or you don't buy something, you're kind of voting with your your dollars or your pounds or, or whatever, right? And, you know, do you think it's more important to act as consumers or to push on the political side or where, where do you think the leverage points are?
1: I mean, I think it's both. I mean, I, I think I used to think that it was just definitely talk to politicians and get them to change their minds. But if if you read, you know, the writing of, of major climate activists like Bill McKibben and stuff like that, he, he, kinda, he has a whole book about the fact that he started all his campaigning in Washington thinking he had to be there to, you know, tell the politicians, and then in the end, he, he comes to the realization that it's it's corporations that rule the world, and <laughs> and that's why three hundred and fifty dot org, his organization, focused so much on divestment and of, of actually thinking about where you're spending your money, because at the end of the day, maybe where you spend your dollars is more important than um, what you write down at the ballot box um, in terms of the impact it has.
0: Right, and sure, and once the voting is kind of done, like things are set for a while, right, and so. But you you buy stuff every day. You consume things or or don't every day. That's pretty interesting. Here in the U.S., I don't think there's a lot of positive policy that's going to be passed in the next two years on on climate stuff. But I I feel like we still get many, many choices on what we buy, what we don't buy, where we get our energy from, things like that. So there's still lots of things that people can do. But I, I totally agree with you on donating some time to activist groups. So maybe uh, what, what do you think is the most, or the most exciting or encouraging development in the last couple of years around sort of positive change to fight climate change? And then maybe like what do you think is a like a setback that we've had that is unfortunate lately?
1: The most exciting would definitely be just the growth in renewable energy. So I'm I'm sure it's similar in the U.S., but here in Australia in particular, the growth of you know people having you know solar panels on their own roofs. And stuff is has been huge, and it's kind of in spite of government efforts to kind of slow it down, um, <laughs> if you like. Because obviously, you know, energy companies have a lot of lobbyists and things like that. But but in, in spite of that, it's it, renewables are just going from strength to strength. So that's definitely the most exciting.
0: I would definitely agree with you that like you know a little bit with the politics versus dollars, like renewable energy is becoming the financially smart choice. And once that happens, like it's just forget the politics, right? <laughs> it's going to solve itself at at that point, but uh, you know, we can slow or hasten it for sure through politics.
1: Probably your question of what was the most discouraging thing is probably the ability of kind of vested interests to slow things down. It kind of, it feels like it almost feels like sometimes with climate change is that we will eventually get there and we will eventually reduce our emissions significantly. But like it's, a slow victory is, is kind of a loss because of all the heat that will be have accumulated in the climate system in the time it took to get there. Is it, we have to win and we have to win fast. And the fact that we're potentially winning, but winning incredibly slowly um, <laughs> is a big problem.
0: <laughs> it's both encouraging and really frustrating at the same time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So um, yeah, no, winning slowly is not really kind of an option, but the ability of vested interest to kind of slow things down makes it feel like it could be, A very slow victory which would be really not a victory at all in the end
0: right all right well maybe we'll leave it leave it there with that (laughs) for the (laughs) the the climate science stuff let me just ask you the the final questions that i ask everyone who's on the show so if you're going to write some uh, python code uh, what editor do you open up
1: i'm a simpleton it'll be like text wrangler or 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 a simple graphical (laughs) text editor like that I used to be kind of self-conscious about that, and then I was teaching at a software carpentry workshop, and one of the helpers was a, a core Python developer, and he told me that he uses simple graphical editors like that too. Ever since he told me that, I've, I've felt really good about myself. <laughs>
0: hey, if the core developers can do it, you could definitely do it. Yeah, That's exactly. Awesome. All right, and and uh, notable PyPI package. I mean, you named a few that are involved in client climate science.
1: Yeah, I thought I might actually give a shout out to a little one, unknown one. I use Git Python. I'm not sure if you've ever. Um, use that it's basically just a hook to git but basically
0: git python
1: yeah yep all one word git python and so basically i use it because a lot of with this these net cdf files that we use um, that have the the metadata in them some of the tools that have been built kind of in the global history attribute of these files it keeps a record of what was entered at the command line to produce this file and so I can I can do that basically I can have a, a script that at the end puts in the history attribute at the command line it was Python, the name of the script and then whatever input arguments it was. So I have a complete record of what was entered at the command line to, to produce this file. And then with git Python I can also have, you know, every commit in Python has a, a unique forty character string associated with it. I can basically put the first seven or so digits of that so I know which version of the code was executed. So yeah, I actually use git python.
0: Yeah, that's awesome.
1: Yeah, git python helps a lot just with reproducibility down to which version of that script did I use.
0: Yeah, and the arguments as well, which is really important. Mm. Awesome. All right, so we've heard a lot about the tools, a lot about how we can contribute, uh, maybe some of the problems. What's the the final call to action? People are interested, how do they get further involved or, or do something along those lines?
1: I mean, I can give a, a shameless plug for myself. So I have a blog, drclimate.wordpress.com, where I talk a lot about Python. In, I talk about research best practice in general, but a lot of the time that means I'm focusing on Python, basically, in climate science. So uh, if people want to subscribe to that, that's a good way to kind of keep up to date with things.
0: You can follow you on Twitter, right? At
1: Yeah, at drclimate as well.
0: Yeah, at drclimate, which I'll put in the show notes, of course.
1: Just to kind of, it'd be good to have, I guess, more people in the in the climate science Python discussion if you like i feel like through some of my involvement in 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 software carpentry with other disciplines particularly in the biosciences um you know bioinformatics and stuff like that the the community around R in those languages is huge and and they seem to be a lot further down the track in terms of dealing with the reproducibility crisis and releasing packages that other people use i feel like Climate science is a smaller community but we need that kind of that strong sense of community around Python to really help with some of those challenges.
0: Right, maybe some people who could actually like convert something into a package that could be reused and help getting it on PyPI or on GitHub, like maybe those type of contributions could be helpful as well. Oh
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there will be a lot of people that have very interesting code from a research perspective that would need a bit of assistance in actually releasing it.
0: Sure. All right. Well, that sounds great. Thank you so much for all your thoughts and sharing um, what you guys are up to in the climate space.
1: Oh no, worries. Uh, thanks, thanks a lot for inviting me on the show.
0: You bet. Talk to you later, Damon. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Today's guest has been Dr. Damian Irving, and this episode has been brought to you by Park My Cloud and Rollbar. Do you hear that sucking noise? That's your cloud provider making you pay for your idle instances. Turn on park my cloud, plug the leaks, and save money. Visit talkpython.fm park to get started. Rollbar takes the pain out of errors. They give you the context and insight you need to quickly locate and fix errors that might have gone unnoticed until your users complain, of course. As talkpython to me listeners, track a ridiculous number of errors for free at rollbar.com talkpython to me. Are you or a colleague trying to learn Python? Have you tried books and videos that just left you bored by covering topics point by point? Well, check out my online course, Python Jumpstart by Building 10 Apps, at talkpython.fm slash course to experience a more engaging way to learn Python. And if you're looking for something a little more advanced, try my Write Pythonic Code course at talkpython.fm slash pythonic. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Open your favorite podcatcher and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes google play feed at slash play and direct rss feed at slash rss on talkpython.fm this is your host michael kennedy thanks so much for listening i really appreciate it now get out there and write some python code